I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello. For those of you who don't know me, I'm David McLean. First off, I'd like to issue an apology for being an American. Sorry, guys. I can't help it. I was born this way. In spite of that fact, I'm here to talk to you about the life of William Shakespeare. It goes without saying that William Shakespeare is one of the greatest writers the world has ever known, but it may not go without saying why we need to cover him in the history of England. The first and most logical reason is that we need to cover Shakespeare because Shakespeare covered English history. As the author of ten plays about English history, Shakespeare, more than almost any individual, would influence how we think about people like Richard III and Henry V. The second and more subtle reason is that Shakespeare would fundamentally change how we think about history itself. If you were to put together a list of, say, the hundred greatest Britons before 1600, you would probably find the list dominated by political figures. I haven't compiled one, but I'd imagine you'd find probably Richard the Lionhearted, Thomas Beckett, Henry VIII, and Queen Boudicca. After 1600, you'd probably come up with a very different list. You'd still have people like Margaret Thatcher and Winston Churchill, but you'd also have Charles Dickens, Jane Austen, Alfred Hitchcock, and John Lennon. For the first time, the people who would change the world would do so by influencing our hearts and our minds. That's a phenomenon that begins with William Shakespeare. When I was 20, the first upper-level undergraduate course I took was on William Shakespeare, and during my first lecture there, I learned some of the basic biography points. I was told that William Shakespeare was born in Stratford-upon-Avon on April the 23rd, 1564, and died there the same day, 52 years later. I learned that he was educated at the prestigious Edward VI school in his hometown, where he would have been given a thorough background in Latin. I was told that he was raised Catholic at a time when it would have been illegal, and that he moved to London in his 20s after separating from his wife, where he became the author of two narrative poems, 154 sonnets, and 38 plays. I was told that during his time there he had affairs with at least two people, Henry Risley, the third Earl of Southampton, and a woman known only as the Dark Lady. My professor was quite proud to tell me that while it was very controversial to talk about his relationship with Henry Risley, it didn't really matter since it didn't change the content of his work. Today, I can tell you that of all the facts I just mentioned, there are basically only two that I can actually verify. 
that William Shakespeare was a resident of Stratford, and that he wrote the plays and poems attributed to him. Everything else, everything I just mentioned, is really just a matter of supposition. In some cases, the assumptions that have been made by historians are the sort of logical guesses that you would make about anyone. But regardless, they are definitely assumptions. You can't see it, but I'm holding my copy of the Yale edition of Shakespeare of Stratford, a small volume that contains all of the biographical information written about William Shakespeare during his lifetime and immediately thereafter. Inside are his baptismal certificate, his marriage license, his will, all the evidence about when and where his plays were produced, and every mention of him by a contemporary during his own lifetime. They're all here in a book roughly the size and shape of two packs of cards put together. Of all the words in my book here, only 14 are actually written by the man himself. Those would be his name six times in varying states of dishevelment, preceded once by the words, by me. Altogether, it's probably a tenth of the information that you would have on your average 13-year-old girl alive today. It's all we have to go on. In general, throughout this podcast, I don't know is going to be kind of a theme. That isn't because I haven't done my research. William Shakespeare, the man who is without question the most significant writer the English language has ever known, is in many ways a phantom, for the basic reason that he didn't seem to like to write about himself. What I can tell you about William Shakespeare is that he was a writer, the greatest writer the world has ever known. I say that because I mean it, but it's also important to remember that he's not an unfathomable genius. His work, taken as a whole, is largely uneven, and deconstructive doesn't always sound impressive. The plots of his plays are for the most part lifted from other sources, with almost a third of them derived at least in part from a single volume of history. The basic rules of playwriting handed down from the works of Aristotle he was either ignorant of or completely ignored. His work would have, even by the time he stopped writing, seemed dated, and at times it's obtuse. Lots and lots of it is basically bad. It's essentially the work of a small-town boy, bright and brilliant. A man, but not a legend. Even so, his plays would change how we use the English language, how we think about the world, and how we relate to each other. It's absolutely no exaggeration, for example, to say that the first screenplay ever written was written by William Shakespeare. In the words of Benjamin Johnson, his work was not of an age, but of all time. He was born in Stratford-upon-Avon on or about the 23rd of April in 1564. At any rate, by the 26th of April he was here, the third child and the first son of John Shakespeare, a tanner and prominent local politician, and his wife Mary, the daughter of a relatively wealthy landowner from a nearby town. By the time he was born, his two older sisters had already died. By the time he was 13, his younger sister Anne would be dead too. The country he was born into was a very difficult and dangerous place. Caught in the middle of both religious and political turmoil, it would have been a hard place to grow up where childhood was not just a matter of happiness but also survival. Still, the Shakespeare family would have been relatively well off, the sort you could count on to marry well and prosper, making their way up the social ladder. 
Anyone who has seen Shakespeare's birthplace, or at any rate, has the common sense to look up a picture of it on Wikipedia before they do a podcast, can see that it's a stately, majestic-looking home, the kind of place that in another era would have been the residence of a doctor or an investment banker. His father, John, would rise to the rank of bailiff, although his career would have its ups and downs. Whether they were Catholic or Protestant is something I can't really answer. But there is a story that in the 18th century, a document was found in the house which was signed by his father and stated that he remained a Catholic at heart. The document eventually disappeared mysteriously, and like most pieces of paper that no one has seen for 200 years, it's not necessarily the kind of certificate of authenticity that you can really rely on. I can't help but feel that signing something like that and leaving it around the house would have been precisely the sort of thing that would get you killed, but this may be a bit of modern thinking on my part. Believe it or not, I can't confirm that he was educated at King Edward VI School in Stratford, no matter how much the Alumni Association of that institution would like you to believe otherwise. In spite of what your teacher may have told you about your bad behavior going on your permanent record, 400-year-old grammar school documents tend to have gone the way of the dodo. What I can tell you is King Edward's is precisely the sort of place that a relatively well-off man from Shakespeare from Stratford, like John Shakespeare, would have sent his eldest son, and that William Shakespeare would have fit this mold rather neatly. I can also tell you that King Edward's school, as all schools did at the time, would have had a Latin-based education, focused in particular on the classics. In short, it was just the sort of place that you would have expected the writer of Julius Caesar and Anthony and Cleopatra to have studied in school. Judging by at least one scene in Henry V, he probably spoke French, although there doesn't seem to be any record that he ever went to France. About the rest of his childhood, I can tell you almost nothing. His father ran into financial problems in the 1570s and would eventually lose his political status before regaining his fortune when Shakespeare was grown. I can't tell you what caused him to lose his fortune or why, or if it was significant to Shakespeare in any way. If I were to speculate, as many, many people have, I would probably suggest that of the myriad of things that John Shakespeare would have wanted for his son, acting and playwriting would not have been at the top of the list. A dicey prospect in almost any era, the idea of your son becoming involved in the theater would have roughly been the equivalent of, say, getting a tattoo on your neck and joining a burlesque troupe. I would imagine that he would have been prepared for a very different life, one filled with marriage, responsibility, and respectability. Whether this was the kind of thing he initially would have wanted, or whether he would have always chafed against this idea, I couldn't say. His youth, like the lost years of Jesus Christ, is largely a mystery. What I can tell you is that in 1582, at the age of 18, young William married Anne Hathaway. It is very, very easy to spin a whole story about Anne Hathaway, the older woman Shakespeare was forced to marry in a shotgun wedding, who he eventually left, and eventually might have served as the inspiration for Hamlet's unfaithful mother. However, and this is important to remember, this is just a story. Listed on her grave as several years older than her husband, Anne is even more than a, of a mystery than William. Her name is spelled alternatively Hathaway and Waitley. And while she was probably the daughter of another prominent local family, no one really knows for sure. 
Married only six months before the birth of their daughter Susanna, it is not unreasonable to imagine that Shakespeare was thinking of his own youth when he created Claudio, a young man imprisoned for having sex with an unmarried woman in Measure for Measure. Claudio, explaining why he's been thrown in the dungeon, says to his friend, From too much liberty, my Lucio, liberty! As surfeit is the father of much fast, so every scope by the immoderate use turns to restraint. Our natures do pursue like rats that raven down their proper bane, a thirsty evil. And when we drink, we die. Whether Shakespeare loved Anne Hathaway or not, I really couldn't say. Sonnet number 145, an odd one with a meter that Shakespeare didn't use at any other time, contains what seems like a play on her name. I hate from hate away she threw and saved my life, saying not you. Hate away and saved my life, get it? It's possible that this was one of Shakespeare's first poems, that he wrote it as a young man for Anne, who, judging by the content of the sonnet, he had to pursue fairly aggressively. It's also possible that this is entirely a coincidence. Although they would never divorce, there has never been a suggestion that she ever joined him in London, and of course, the remainder of the sonnets show fairly clearly that Shakespeare had some fairly liberal ideas on the subject of fidelity. His will, written at the end of his life, has a note in the margin that reads, to my wife, I leave my second best bed and the furniture. This may have been a dig at a woman whose love he had long since forgotten, or it may simply be a badly written document, possibly drawn up by someone else altogether. Regardless of their relative marital bliss, the couple were together long enough to celebrate the birth of twins, Hamnet and Judith, in 1585. About the rest of the re their relationship, nothing is really known. Shakespeare would remain involved with Stratford all of his life. It's possible that he came back to Stratford to spend time with his loving wife. Although I wouldn't call this the likeliest scenario. How exactly and why Shakespeare ended up in London as a part of the theater scene there is one of those sorts of mysteries about which entire novels could be written. In all probability, his interest in acting wasn't any different than that different than that of your average young man who goes to New York with dreams of being on Broadway. If I were to make a guess, I would imagine that he might have been inspired by the sort of traveling theatrical productions that would have come through Stratford at the time. Although, again, this is purely speculation. What is certain is that by 1592, he had come to enough attention to inspire the jealousy of a rival poet. The poet was a man named Robert Greene, who would be best remembered for insulting both Christopher Marlowe and William Shakespeare, and for absolutely nothing else. The insult comes from his publication A Groat's Worth of Wit, a pamphlet he apparently composed on his deathbed, because nothing says dying gracefully like a heavy dose of spite. The passage mentions that mentions Shakespeare runs for about three lines, and it reads as follows. There is an upstart crow, beautified with our feathers, that with his tiger's heart wrapped in a player's hide, supposes he is as well able to bombast out blank verse as the best of you, and being an absolute Johannes factotum, is in his own conceit the only shake scene in the country. For the uninitiated, Johannes factotum would have been the Latin equivalent of 
jack-of-all-trades, and the line Tiger's Heart wrapped in a player's hide is a paraphrase of a line from Henry VI, Part Three: Oh, Tiger's Heart wrapped in a woman's hide. It's a play that's most likely to be nominated for one you'd never see performed under any circumstances whatsoever. So perhaps the dying green can be forgiven for not seeing the brilliant work that Shakespeare had before him. Shakespeare himself would have been about 28 at this time and probably would have seemed very much like an outsider, a poorly educated country boy trying to make his way in the big city. Certainly he lacked the Cambridge education that Christopher Marlowe had. How long he had been in London is anybody's guess, but I can't help but think that the phrase upstart crow isn't the sort of thing you would say about someone who had been around very long. How many plays he had written at this point is also a matter of conjecture. Even the fact that he had written Henry VI Part Three is not necessarily indicative of his having written Parts One and Two. In all likelihood, there are a number of early works that have been lost. For example, there are two references in the later years to a play entitled Love Labors One, which no one has ever seen. This may be an early companion to Love Labors Lost, or it may simply be a reference to a play we know by another name, possibly The Taming of the Shrew. About his life in London, there isn't a tremendous amount, I can tell you, but I can give you an idea about what life in London might have been like. It was a city then of about 200,000 people, which meant that it was about the size that Norwich is today. To the average modern resident, the old city would strike them as being impressively small, dirty, and disgusting. The houses would have been cramped and wooden, with no plumbing at all. Disease would have been rampant. The powdered wig just coming into fashion in Shakespeare's lifetime came into being to hide balding and scars from syphilis. It was probably a small miracle that the entire city didn't burn down sooner than it did in 1666. Most people would probably have had one meal a day, something consisting of, say, questionable meat, a little cheese, and enough ale to knock me out cold. Cheapside, the section of town with which Shakespeare would become most familiar, was probably the kind of place that Lou Reed would have written a song about if he had been four centuries older than he was. Still, it was a seat of power and was the kind of place that would attract young men seeking fame and fortune. Shakespeare would have done well to rent a room in this environment, and indeed he seems to have lived in someone else's house long after he purchased a home back in Stratford. About his work habits, I don't know much, but for most of his adult life, he seems to have churned out a play every three to six months, an impressive amount of work, especially given that he would have needed to allow a certain amount of time for rehearsals and performances. This may be the reason that the plots for almost all his plays were lifted from other sources. Then again, it could be that he was simply looking to emulate works which people would find familiar. While there isn't any real way of knowing precisely which play is first and what, exactly order, what exact order the early ones come in in particular, the plays that are usually believed to be the earliest tend to be shorter, more violent, and not as good as the ones in his later and middle years. There's more of an emphasis on sticking to blank verse and a larger number of rhymes. He would have been an actor in these productions as well as in the works of his contemporaries like Christopher Marlowe. Tradition holds that he played smaller roles, older men usually, although the scholarship on this is more than a little thin. Although there are flashes of brilliance among his early plays, they are not, by and large, his best work. 
If no one had ever called him a second-rate Christopher Marlowe, then it wasn't because he hadn't earned that title. Find someone involved in a production of Titus Andronicus or Two Gentlemen of Verona, and they will undoubtedly tell you that it's really not that bad, or something similar. This is what we call a tell. During Shakespeare's lifetime, the playhouses would close a number of times due to excessive outbreak of plague, and it was during one of those times that Shakespeare would turn to writing poetry, turning out long, narrative poems, uh, Venus and Adonis and the Rape of Lucrece. Venus and Adonis, in particular, was a great success, being reprinted a large number of times during Shakespeare's lifetime. In and of themselves, they are certainly worth reading, and definitely worth scholarship, but this isn't the reason that they show up so prominently in absolutely every modern Shakespeare biography. The reason for that is the dedication at the beginning of each volume, in particular the dedication to the rape of Lucrece, which reads as follows. To the Right Honorable Henry Risley, Earl of Southampton and Baron of Titchfield, the love I dedicate to your lordship is without end whereof this pamphlet without beginning is but a superfluous moiety. The warrant I have of your honorable disposition, not the worth of my untutored line, makes it assured of your acceptance. What I have done is yours. What I have to do is yours. Being part in all I have, devoted yours. Were my worth greater, my duty would show greater. Meantime, as it is, it is bound to your lordship, to whom I wish long life, still lengthened with all happiness. In your lordship's duty, William Shakespeare. This and the dedication to Venus and Adonis, which is similar, are as close as we have to an actual letter from William Shakespeare, and lots and lots of speculation has been made about what hidden meaning lies in it. To be sure, it's a fairly flowery dedication. The phrase, the love I dedicate to your lordship is without end, isn't one you're likely to throw around at parties. However, and I'd like to be clear on this, it's just a dedication. Nicholas Rowe, Shakespeare's first biographer, would relate a story well over a hundred years old that Southampton gave him a thousand pounds, although he doesn't say when or why. The dedication may simply be an attempt to get that patronage, or to thank him for having received it. Indeed, there are other writers of lesser regard who would also dedicate works to him. Still, the wording of the dedication has to make you wonder. I have someone in my life who I can tell what I have done is yours, what I have to do yours. She's not a total stranger. So who was this man, Henry Risley, the Earl of Southampton? Well, if I were, say, a podcaster who has a habit of giving Americans a guest shot on his podcast, even though it's called The History of England, I might put up a picture of Risley from around the 1590s on my website, which would show him to be a fair youth, a few years younger than Shakespeare, possessing surprisingly long curly hair and an odd earring that looks a little like a butterfly. He looks, well, he looks like he's plucked his eyebrows and is wearing lipstick. Even so, no one would probably have thought much of it if it weren't for a mention of Shakespeare by a writer named Francis Maris almost four years later. Maris, going out on a limb, was suggesting that this new guy Shakespeare was almost as good as the classic Greek and Roman writers. 
and Honey Tongue Shakespeare, he writes. Witness his Venus and Adonis, his Lucrece, his sugared sonnets among his private friends. The sonnets would not be published for another 11 years, in what was almost certainly the bit-torrent file of its day. They contain many errors the author would have wanted to correct, and appear to be out of order in several places. They are dedicated by the publisher to a Mr. W.H., described as the only begetter of these ensuing sonnets, which I, for one, tend to think means that he stole them. Had the sonnets been published in an authorized form, it would have been one of the bravest steps in the history of English literature. As it was, you have to appreciate the courage it must have taken to show them to his private friends. Containing some of the best romantic poetry the world has to offer, as well as a number of ruminations on depression, despair, and death, the sonnets of William Shakespeare are the only glimpse we have into Shakespeare's personal life, and at times reading them is a little like looking at someone else's email without seeing the responses they get. They appear to be addressed to at least two distinct people, a woman with raven black hair and a fair-haired young man, who is said to be a few years younger than the writer. In particular, the early sonnets are peppered with homosexual imagery. Phrases like, Lord of my love, and thou art the master mistress of my passion, speak fairly unequivocally that Shakespeare was involved with another man. If you have ever heard the couplet, Shall I compare thee to a summer's day, thou art more lovely and more temperate, and not known that the words were almost certainly written about a young boy, you can be forgiven. Homosexual characters are almost entirely absent from his other work. Although his contemporaries, Christopher Marlowe and Ben Jonson, did feature them rather prominently. Indeed, for several centuries, scholars tiptoed around the homoerotic imagery in these poems, doing some things in the process that, in retrospect, seemed pretty ugly, including rewriting them or trying to insist that they are simply an expression of friendship and nothing more. For those thinking along that route, I would suggest picking a male friend, calling him up, and leaving a message on his voicemail saying, For all that beauty that doth cover thee is but seemingly raiment of my heart. Preferably uh, late on a Saturday night, and then see how the conversation goes afterward. So was the young man in the sonnets Henry Risley? I, I really couldn't say. It's not clear that they ever actually met, although it was probably a fair bet that Risley would have seen him perform with the Lord Chamberlain's men during one of their performances for the Queen. I can't say for certain that the poems were addressed to a single young man. There may have been more than one, although the first twenty or so sonnets definitely seem to be written for the same person in what seems to be a relatively short period of time. What I can tell you is that Henry Risley's initials would have been H.W., and, of course, the only begetter of the sonnets is Mr. W.H. Also, by the year that they were published, Risley was older, married, and seems to have rung up some gambling debts in Paris. I have, and I cannot overemphasize this, no idea how much someone would have been paid for original copies of the sonnets at that point. I can only tell you how much I would pay for them now, which is a number approaching a billion. Shakespeare's narrative poetry was very successful. Venus and Adonis would be reprinted 
ten times by 1640, and nearly every contemporary reference praising Shakespeare mentions the rape of Lucrece. It is perhaps surprising, then, that he ultimately chose to go back to the theater. I can only conclude that he did so because he loved it. I have absolutely no documentation to base this theory on. There isn't a letter anywhere stating so, and so had talked to Shakespeare and heard he was going back to playwriting because he decided that narrative poems weren't cool. I only have his work. 38 plays, an entire shelf in my library, many, many of which are simply the best the world has ever known. Writing in blank verse is a monumental task, taking huge amounts of time and energy and patience, and it's fair to assume, I think, that they are first and foremost a labor of love. We all make choices. Shakespeare's was to be a playwright. I think we can all agree that he made the right move. If you've ever seen a play at the New Globe Theater or seen the movie Shakespeare in Love, you probably feel that you have a pretty good idea of what it was like to see Richard Burbage and the Chamberlain's Men perform Henry V or Richard III. Indeed, those experiences are designed to give you the feel that you are really immersed in that time. And it's easy to imagine old Will himself standing off in the wings, maybe complaining about the audience with Ben Johnson or trading jokes with Christopher Marlowe. Performed on the proverbial wrong side of the tracks for an audience that would have been looking for a slightly classier alternative to bear baiting, it isn't hard to imagine how theater at the time would have had a bad name. The plays would have been performed in modern dress, there's a drawing of the otherwise Roman Titus Androticus being done by people in doublets, and would have featured the famous all-male cast, along with a dance at the end, sort of like a Bollywood film. They were performed for Queen Elizabeth, who was reportedly very fond of John Falstaff, and later for King James, who would make Shakespeare's company the King's Men. If the work of his contemporaries is to be taken as an indicator, body jokes and violent action tended to go over pretty well with the crowds. Linguists who study these things usually refer to the English dialect that was spoken at the time as something called O.E., an accent which, to my untrained ear, always sounds a little like the sort of working-class Irish dialect affected by actors doing either a production of Juno and the Peacock or a voiceover for a Lucky Charms commercial. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take up arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing in them. You get the idea. The plays would have been done at court as well as at the Globe Theatre and for private audiences in productions that I suspect would have seemed almost unapologetically bad. Like any artistic medium, acting is prone to stylistic changes over the centuries. Try watching a 50-year-old episode of Doctor Who and ask yourself how it's going to look in another 500 years if you want to get a sense of the problem. Still, they were quite popular. In one of the few personal anecdotes about Shakespeare, there is a story about a young woman who, taken with Richard Burbage's performance the night before, asked that he might come to her as Richard III. Shakespeare, overhearing their conclusion, went before, was entertained, and at his game when Burbage came. Then message being brought that Richard III was at the door caused return to be made that William the Conqueror was before Richard III. I usually think that groupies are probably the sign that things are going well. I'm not sure that Richard III would have tried to get lucky as Richard III.
These are fun ideas to think about, but as with anything else, there's still an awful lot we either don't know or don't understand. I can't tell you, for example, how exactly the text of a performance would have compared to the printed page. Early editions of the plays tend to differ somewhat drastically from later publications, so the chances are they would have cut things. I would love to know the specifics of the productions at the Globe Theatre, which naturally are entirely lost. How passionately Romeo would have kissed Juliet when Juliet was played by a boy. Would the audience have seen Violet as anything other than a young man when she comes out dressed as one and played by one in As You Like It? These are things we can never know. The chorus in Romeo and Juliet refers to the play as being the two hours traffic of our stage, even though modern productions, as written, would take at least three hours or more. Was it simply hacked to pieces, or does that mean they talked very, very quickly? Or did Shakespeare simply think that the play would take less time to perform than it did and never bothered revising the line? I suspect that it was some combination of all three, although this is really just a guess. There is really an impressive amount of dry and essentially useless information in Shakespeare's biological record. I can tell you, for example, about a load of gravel he sold, about a loan of 20 pounds he made to a friend, and about a civil suit he testified in. However, one of the things that is documented that I can say for absolute certainty must have shaped his life happened on the 11th of August, 1596, when the Stratford Burial Register would record the death of his son, Hamnet. How Shakespeare felt about the death of his son I can only imagine, although I can quote a particularly moving passage from King John, which probably was written in the same year. For since the birth of Cain, the first male child to him that did but yesterday suspire, there was not such a gracious creature born. I can't tell you about how Shakespeare would have felt or reacted to the death of his son. I can only tell you what it's like to have a son you've been separated from and what feelings that inspires in you. Consider for a moment, though, the plays he would write in the years that immediately followed. The Merchant of Venice. The two parts of Henry IV. Much Ado About Nothing. Julius Caesar. Henry V. Say what you like about Shakespeare's early works. Praise them or damn them. There is no denying that it's the work of the middle years, which does seem to start right after the death of his son, that rings out for all time. No one alive on the face of the earth would claim that the first play of Shakespeare's that they fell in love with was Two Gentlemen of Verona. It was a streak that would redefine English literature, and of course it would climax with one of the darkest and most powerful stories ever written, the tragedy of Hamlet, the Prince of Denmark. I have read and heard a surprisingly large number of scholars who gloss over the name of Shakespeare's only son as a fairly insignificant detail in his life. That's Hamnet, H-A-M-N-E-T, exactly one letter off from the name of a certain Danish prince who would come to dominate a fairly large percentage of literary criticism. These are incredibly the same scholars who frequently claim that David Copperfield is obviously based on Charles Dickens because they have the same initials, only reversed. It's, of course, entirely possible that the names could have been a coincidence. I believe in coincidences. 
However, when it comes to brilliant writers, I tend not to trust them. To this controversy, I can only add the words of Shakespeare's first biographer, Nicholas Rowe, who in one of the few generally interesting anecdotes he relates, writes, Of what sort of parts he used to play, and though I have inquired, I could never meet any further account of him this way, than that the top of his performance was the ghost in his own Hamlet. As a writer and a performer from way back, I can tell you that if you find yourself in a play about the agony of being separated from your loved ones, and you find yourself doing a scene with a character named after your dead son, you are probably not strictly acting when the words, adieu, adieu, remember me, come across your lips. There's a fine line between fiction and reality, and at that point you've crossed it several times. By the way, in Shakespeare's will, he leaves five pounds to the man his son was named after, and his name is definitely spelled with an L. You be the judge. To quote the actor Stephen Tobolowsky, Hamlet is probably the best play ever written because no matter how many times you've seen it, you never really believe it's going to end how it does. It's a play that in the half of a millennia since it's been written has truly been all things to all people. Never mind London and New York, there have been notable productions in Indonesia, Scandinavia, Rio de Janeiro, and Russia. The main character has been played by black actors, Hispanic actors, Asian actors, and the great actress Sarah Bernhardt played the role in a film, no less. He's been portrayed as a homosexual, a victim of incest, and as a screaming lunatic in modern dress, in Victorian dress, and in period dress at Elsinore Castle. He's been played by Laurence Olivier, Richard Burton, Alec Guinness, and Ethan Hawke, and something like three of the members of the faculty at Hogwarts. Keanu Reeves, at the height of his untalented powers, took a job playing Hamlet in Winnipeg, of all places. Because, as better people than myself have said, playing Hamlet is a privilege, no matter where you do it. Although it's easy to exclaim the virtues of Hamlet, the history plays that comprise the second tetralogy are no less of an achievement. Covering the time period of the end of the reign of Richard II through the aftermath of the Battle of Agincourt, they are some of the most complex, dynamic, and interesting characters that Shakespeare would ever write, as well as containing some of the most stirring expositions on English patriotism. As I said earlier, Shakespeare's history plays would redefine history, not just how we think of it, but how we experience it, and his characterizations and feelings about the kings and queen and queens in England would affect our opinions of those men and women forever. One of the first opportunities for this to happen would be during Shakespeare's own lifetime, when in February 1601, a group of supporters of Robert DeVroe, the Earl of Essex, would pay a surprisingly large amount of money to have the king's men perform Richard II, and then would invite a number of the Earl's friends to attend the performance. For those of you who haven't been to see the RSC this year, Richard II is one of Shakespeare's most difficult characters, a man who is progressing from being a bad person to a good one at the expense of his own power. If, like me, you're in the States, it's probably best remembered for the elderly John of Gaunt's dying speech in Act Two, used for many years over here in British Airways commercials. This royal throne of kings, 
This sceptered isle, this earth of majesty, this seat of Mars, this other Eden, demi-paradise, this fortress built by nature for herself against infection and the hand of war, this happy breed of men, this little world, this precious stone set in the silver sea which serves it in the office of a wall or as a moat defensive to a house against the envy of less happier lands, this blessed plot, this earth, this realm, this England. Great stuff, you say. But what, you might ask, does all this have to do with the price of eggs? Well, you have to remember that in 1601, England was still a country deeply divided after the Protestant Reformation, and the Queen was on one side of that divide, and Devereux was on the other. It seems that Devereux, already at odds with the Queen on a number of issues, was rather keen to remind everyone of the reign of Richard II, who both in the play and in real life was overthrown by Henry Bolingbroke, later Henry IV, in what these days we would call a political coup. Devereux, or at any rate his followers, were hopeful that reminding everyone that overthrowing a monarch was actually possible would inspire people to do just that. The morning after the production, Devereux took to the streets with a plan of marching to Whitehall and forcing an audience with the Queen. It's easy to imagine that Devereux, believing people would be inspired by the noble words of John and God, pictured thousands joining him in a massive rally that would end with the Queen being clapped in irons and Devereux himself lauded as the new defender of the faith. The only problem with this plan was that it completely backfired. The plot was a disaster. By all accounts, the idea of overthrowing the Queen proved about as popular as an open-mic poetry reading. Robert DeVroe was arrested for treason and would be dead within a month. How much did Shakespeare have to do with all of this? I really couldn't say. It may be that his company was simply offered a paying gig, which they took without thinking about it. However, given the long tradition that Shakespeare is an actor, an actor favored playing older father figures in his own plays, I can't help but put him as a leading candidate for having played John of Gaunt. And by the way, among DeVereux's conspirators was our old friend Henry Risley. It's entirely possible that this is a meaningless coincidence, but it doesn't seem likely. Strangely enough, Shakespeare himself wasn't called at DeVereux's t- trial. Instead, testimony was provided by his partner, Augustine Phillips, who complained that the play was so old and so long out of use that they should have small or no company at it. Although the Queen would be quoted as saying, I am Richard II, know ye not that? She seems to have forgotten the incident rather quickly. By the next January, Shakespeare's company would be back at court with The Merry Wives of Windsor, a play apparently specifically written at the Queen's request. Many of the men involved with DeVoe's plot would be involved with a gunpowder plot under the, reign of James the, under the reign of King James four years later. Much has been made of the fact that Shakespeare probably hung out at the same bar with these guys. But London was a small town back then, and as anyone in a small town can tell you, there usually aren't that many places to go. I would
would imagine if I, say, did a regular podcast on the history of England, I would probably expect to get a lot of questions about how Richard III was not the unbelievable bastard that Shakespeare makes him out to be, or that Henry V, while a very fine king, probably never shouted out, once more unto the breach, before landing a group, leading a group of men into battle. I would probably point out that Shakespeare was not a historian, and that some of the historical plays have only a passing relationship with the truth. Macbeth, in particular, is given a pretty unfair treatment, and Richard II had a much longer and more complicated reign than is presented on the stage. Falstaff, the dominant figure in the two parts of Henry IV, is a really a fictional character, probably written for a specific actor, and the less said about his version of Henry VIII, the better. I would be entirely right in pointing all of this out, and it is very true that no king of England ever gave a speech before a group of men going into battle that was as eloquent as the one that Henry V gives in Act Four of the play named after him. He that shall live this day and see old age will yearly on the vigil feast his neighbors and say, Tomorrow is St. Crispin. Then he will strip his sleeve and show his scars and say, These wounds I had on Crispin's day. Henry V never said that before a battle. But Laurence Olivier did. He performed that monologue in a film just before the Allied invasion of Normandy. A film he specifically made so that he could give that speech to all of the soldiers heading off to defeat the Nazis, men he knew were probably going to die in large numbers. So when I say Shakespeare changed history, I don't just mean that he changed the way we think about Henry VI or John of Gaunt or about the monarchy in general, although he did all of those things, to be sure. He also changed the way we think about the Industrial Revolution, William Suffra women's suffrage, the Nazis, William Churchill, and rock and roll. But of all the plays Shakespeare would write, none would change the way we think about ourselves more than the tragedy of Othello. I have no idea how the folio William Shakespeare had the courage, and certainly we have to admit that it must have taken courage to write an entire play centered around a black protagonist in an era when the non-white population of London would have numbered just a handful of individuals. Borrowing heavily from his earlier Titus Andronicus, only with the racial roles reversed, Othello would become a touchstone for discussions of race almost four centuries after debuting at the Globe, when black actors, particularly in America, would take on the role for the first time. Brilliantly played in both London and on Broadway by the actor Paul Robeson, best known for singing Old Man River, and also by William Marshall, who unfortunately is best known for playing Blackula, the role of Othello, the noble outsider driven to insanity by the white devil Iago, would become a standard by which great black actors on both sides of the Atlantic would come to define themselves, eventually being played by Lawrence Fishburne, James Earl Jones and strangely Patrick Stewart, who played a white Othello in Washington, D.C. in an otherwise all-black production. It would be very easy to spend a great amount of time simply talking about the plays I like so much, but it's also true that his work in later years would often prove difficult and challenging. The three basic types of plays he wrote, comedies, tragedies, and histories, would break down. Trollius and Cressida seems to swing rather awkwardly between tragedy and body comedy. In Macbeth and King Lear, we get tragedy based on history. And in The Winter's Tale and Measure for Measure, we get arguably two of the darkest plays ever given the title of company. With The Tempest, we're treated to what is probably an entirely new genre, science fiction.
It's difficult to write a short history of someone's life without imagining that the world they left behind was very different than the one they inherited. But in Shakespeare's case, the change must have seemed dramatic. The Elizabethan era would give way to the reign of King James. The number of Catholics in the country had decreased significantly. The gunpowder plot had come and gone. Oliver Cromwell was a teenager, and the powdered wig was just coming into fashion. Shakespeare's blank verse and language choices would probably be looked at as something your father would have enjoyed. Gone were the stories of young love. Middle-aged and increasingly older characters would take the center stage. If you were a fan of comedy, you almost certainly would have preferred the biting wit of Ben Jonson, who admittedly was in the middle of a great string of comedies in the early 17th century. Still, Shakespeare had prospered. He was an established gentleman with his own coat of arms. He owned extensive property, including a share in the Blackfriars Theatre. Theater. Both his daughters had married, one to a prominent doctor. Other had admittedly married a deadbeat. But still, you couldn't have everything. It's difficult these days to think of a man in his mid-forties as nearing retirement and slowing down, but definitely that seems to have, what, have been what happened in Shakespeare's case. In 1609, his name would be notably absent from a list of the king's men playing Johnson's Valpone, a clue that he probably had quit acting. Increasingly, his works would become collaborations. How many and which ones are to a large extent a matter of debate. Two Noble Kinsmen and the Lost Cardinio are credited to, John Sha- or excuse me, to William Shakespeare and Jonathan Fletcher. Others, like Timon of Athens, Henry VIII, and Pericles, Prince of Tyre, have long been speculated as being partly written by someone else, at least in part because they aren't any good. What little documentation on his life that we have increases during the final years of his life, and he seems to have spent most of his time in Stratford, where apparently he became a man of business. If the thought of an aging Will Shakespeare as your landlord seems strange, well, it could have happened. By 1613, his career as a dramatist appears to have been over. How he felt about it, I really couldn't say for sure. But I'd like to think that he had his eye on his work as a whole when he wrote at the end of The Tempest, But release me from my bands with the help of your good hands. Gentle breath of yours my sails must fill, or else my project fails, which was to please. It was shortly after he wrote that that the Globe Theatre would burn to the ground. What the fire would take with it, I don't know. I can't tell you if there were leftover prompt books from productions that would have happened there, or if Shakespeare had an office or dressing room he would have worked in. In any case, it went up in a puff of smoke. It would be rebuilt again before burning down a second time, roughly 30 years later. I can't tell you how Shakespeare died, Although I can tell you that he wrote his will just a few months beforehand, which is the sort of thing that makes it look like the writing was on the wall. It's possible that being 51, he was being responsible by putting his affairs in order, only to be struck by lightning a few months later. But this doesn't seem like the likeliest scenario. John Ward, a Stratford vicar, would tell the story that Shakespeare would fall ill after a night of hard drinking. But since he was born 13 years after Shakespeare died... We must take the anecdote with a grain of salt. As I said earlier, he left his wife his second best bed, the first time that Anne Hathaway had been mentioned in connection with her husband in quite some time. I can't tell.
tell you if leaving her as second best bed was something metaphorical or simply an accidental turn of phrase, but come on, William Shakespeare throwing words around carelessly? In any case, he probably died on the 23rd of April, which tradition holds was his 52nd birthday. It's hard to believe that his life would end with as little fanfare as it seems to have. He was buried in Holy Trinity Church in Stratford-upon-Avon. The bust there is the only picture of the man we can safely say was created from real life. It shows an older, overweight, balding man of about 50, more simply dressed than we might normally picture him. He is, of course, writing with a quill, and his epitaph reads, Good friend, for Jesus' sake, forbear to dig the dust enclosed here. Blessed be the man that spares my bones, and cursed be he that moves my bones. The rest, I suppose, is silence. Over the centuries, several other likenesses would turn up. Some undoubtedly simply fill the space in our imagination. One, at the very least, was owned by someone who knew the man. He was gone, although his sphere of influence was just beginning. In 1623, his friends at the Globe Theatre, undoubtedly hoping to preserve his legacy and also hoping to avoid paying royalties to the then recently deceased Anne Hathaway, would put together the first folio, the nearly complete collection of his works. At a cost of a compound, uh, excuse me, at a cost of a pound, it was ridiculously expensive, and to make matters worse, it came without a cover meaning that you'd get a pile of papers and a reference to someone who might bind it for you, which probably also would have cost you a pound. However, on the plus side, in the five centuries since its publication, it's increased in, a value, in value at a rate of roughly 1.5 million percent per year, and was arguably one of the most significant publications in the history of man. So if you've got the scratch, feel free to pick one up on eBay. In a posthumous release that kicks anything forthcoming from J.D. Salinger, the first folio is our exclusive source for no less than 18 of Shakespeare's plays. Julius Caesar, The Tempest, Macbeth, and Twelfth Night, among others, would all make their first appearance in the first folio. All of his later works would first come to see print there. Without it, we wouldn't have seen his progression from young to old, and in many ways, he might have remained the poet of young love that he was in his youth. Finally, there's one more thing. I wasn't going to address it at all, but for the sake of cutting down on the number of emails, I will. If you were to look at, say, Shakespeare's Wikipedia page, you'd probably come across a section entitled Questions About Authorship. These theories tend to talk about someone named Edward de Vere, the Earl of Oxford, and they tend to be biased, or excuse me, based on ideas that involve some clever use of the word ever in the sonnets, and the general belief that someone that talented had to have been someone with a degree from Oxford and a sophisticated bloodline. They usually tend to ignore the fact that de Vere would have had to continue writing for a good three years after he died, but this is neither here nor there. I don't really want to go into this, but I'd like to take a moment to explain why the idea that Edward de Vere in particular was the real author of Shakespeare's plays became so popular. Well, it's a theory that got started about 150 years ago, and it has to do with Henry Risley again. Some scholars, so uncomfortable with the idea that the sonnets had to have been written for another man, 
uh, and convinced that the man was Risley, came up with a theory to explain some of the homoeroticism prevalent in the sonnets. In some of the early sonnets, Shakespeare, in spite of the, his relationship with a young man, whoever he was, encourages this youth to get married and have children. You see, at one point, around the time that the sonnets were being written, Risley almost married Edward de Vere's daughter. This gave a lot of very old, conservative-minded men a way out. Aha! They would say. It's not a series of love poems written for another man. It's just an expression of love from a father figure to a would-be son-in-law. And that bit about Lord of My Love, well, that's just a bad turn of phrase. All they had to do was discredit a man's entire life's work. The whole thing is really just a bit of 19th century homophobia that has kind of snowballed out of control. So there you have it. Thanks for listening. Once again, I'm David McLean. I have absolutely no idea what David's audible recommendation is this week, but my recommendation is that you check out my book, Dragon Bait. It's the story of a brave princess in love with a beautiful dragon. There's an audio version available from audible.com now. It's uh, read by a man named Jeff Hayes, who has much, much better recording equipment than I do. And you can take a look at the illustrations from the book on the Dragon Bait Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash David McLean, Dragon Bait. Uh, my name is spelled D-A-V-I-D-M-C-L-A-I-N. A big thanks to the other David for letting me hijack his podcast for the week. Any questions, comments, complaints, I can be reached at mclean.dave at gmail.com. That's M-C-L-A-I-N dot D-A-V-E at gmail.com. Thanks, guys. <laughs>